So then Christ died for every person, for every sinner, for every tribe, for every atheist, for every Jew, for every Muslim, for every people group. Well, if you would turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter number 5, we'll be reading from verse 38 to 42. What is at the end of the second mile? What is at the end of the second mile? Now, if you would uh, pull up your Bible, and if you would read, read along with me in Matthew chapter 5, verse 38 to 42, here's what it says. Ye have heard that it hath been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you that ye resist not evil, but whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if any man will sue thee at the law and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. And whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain. Give to him that asketh thee, and from him that would borrow of thee, turn not thou away. So what's at the end of the second mile? Now, I hear that the Irish talk of the end of the rainbow, and at the end of the rainbow, usually there's a pot of gold, is what they say. Now, Jesus talks about the second mile, but what do we really find at the end of the second mile? The second mile idea that Jesus is talking about is based on something that the Romans had. It was called the one-mile law. The one-mile law. Oftentimes, it demanded that a Roman soldier, when a Roman soldier would come by to a citizen, that, or not a citizen, excuse me, somebody who was ruled over by Rome, they were obligated to drop whatever they were doing, and they had to take upon themselves whatever weight that the Roman soldier wanted them to carry, and they were forced to walk one mile with the Roman soldier. That's where it came from. The Romans had a name to this law, but it was called the law of Angaria. But the idea behind what Christ was saying in, these, in this passage is if someone forces something onto you to not just meet the quota, but to exceed the quota and do more than what the quota demands. That's the basic principle behind it. Now, if you would imagine if you were a Jew back then and you were living under this Roman rule, you were doing your groceries at your local superstore or supermarket. And then one day, you know, a Roman soldier comes by. And sure enough, you happen to make eye contact with that Roman soldier. And he chooses you. And now... He's not going the way you were about to go. He's not going towards the direction of your home. He's going to go one mile from a total di different direction from where you would want it to have gone. Not only that, you don't have Roman legionnaire training. So he's going to make you pick up his shield, pick up his rations, pick up some of his armor, and now you're going to carry it with him one whole mile. Can you imagine 
Oh, and by the way, you have no compensation. You had to all do it for free. You can imagine now why the Jews back then were really hesitant to be around a Roman soldier. When a Roman soldier comes by into your neighborhood, you probably don't want to be looking at him. You probably want to hide. You know, kind of like when a teacher asks a question, everyone just looks away, don't want, doesn't want to make eye contact with a teacher so that the teacher doesn't pick on them type of thing. But Jesus, he was flipping this idea about the first mile over on its head. And what he was saying is when you are given the opportunity to carry the weight, don't just do one mile, but do a second. Why? Why should I go a second mile? What is at the end of a second mile? And that's what we're going to try and answer with three key principles. But first, let's open up in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for today. I thank you for everyone watching right now, tuned in on their devices. I pray, Lord, that uh, any distractions that might come up, that uh, you would uh, keep them focused on this, even if they are only able to listen. I pray, Lord, that uh, you would help, help them to be fully devoted to what you have to say through this message. I pray, Heavenly Father, that you would speak through me and that we would understand what are these principles behind the second mile. We pray, Lord, that you would be blessed and you would be honored and glorified through everything that is said and done here today. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Not only does Christ say that to go the second mile, he goes further and says that if someone asks you for something, don't withhold, but let them borrow. Let them have it. Why? Is there a benefit? Now, if you try and apply these principles today, if you are to ask to do some volunteer work and apply this principle, would you do it? And do a little more than what you are asked. Perhaps you're a student and you're asked to do some homework. You don't really understand the subject, but you will do the homework. That's meeting quota. But then if you start doing extra research, extra reading along on the side, now that's the extra mile. Or perhaps <laughs> as, a, as a kid and a parent were to ask the kid, go clean your room, don't only clean the room, but also clean the dishes and perhaps even the whole house. That is much more than one mile. So there are three key principles of why we should seek to do the second mile. And we need to grasp them as Christians. Christ isn't just saying these things for your life to be miserable. There is an incredible thing that we will receive as Christians if we go the second mile. So the first key principle is the realization we are doing it for God. That's key one. The scriptures are clear that Jesus Christ showed us that our actions ought to be motivated by a mind of selflessness. It's not to be uh, fully en uh, encompassed by ourselves. It's not to be fully encompassed by pride or anything like that. Everything we do needs to be with a mind of love, with a mind that is motivated to do God's work. And that is what God wants, us for, God wants for us. Jesus further expounds how Christians ought to treat their enemies. Right after this passage, the next passage over is about loving your enemies and to bless them that curse you. 
And you need to realize that God's love for you before you could show it to others. See, this mindset is not geared to want our own needs or our own rights. But it's to seek after what God wants. What does God want? You realize that for the mess that humankind created, God is the one who put it upon himself to clean it up. By the mess, I mean sin. God gave his only begotten son as a payment for our indebtedness. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever, whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And there are grateful people that understand that, but there are also ungrateful people. But here's the thing. Christ didn't die only for the grateful people. He also died for the ungrateful people. doesn't matter who it was. Christ died for them. Some people have this idea, just like I was talking about. The Jews had this idea that God only came for them. And they had this idea that, oh, Jesus Christ came to get rid of this Roman occupation, to bring some sort of justice and to remove this Hungarian law, which was things that were forced upon you, that first mile that was, first, uh, that was forced upon you. But you see, even John 3.17, the verse right after John 3.16 says, For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. So then Christ died for every person, for every sinner, for every tribe, for every atheist, for every Jew, for every Muslim, for every people group. In Romans 5, verse 6 and 8, you don't, uh, you don't have to turn there, but it says, For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet peradventure for a good man, some would even dare to die. You see, when most people are willing to die for someone, it's only for the person they love or the people they love. But Christ died for all including the people who hate him. But God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Do you realize that you were never in a state to be able to even bargain for a deal with Christ at first? But you see, when it comes to our sin, we're not even close to a position for a fair trade with God. We have nothing to offer. But forgiveness is there, ready for the claiming for whoever will ask of it. Isn't, it's not about you doing a bunch of good things or the achievements that you have accumulated in your life or whether it is the, a good family or a bad family that you came from or whichever country you're from. None of that matters because the same fate is awaiting every sinner, death. So Christ died for all. Now, if you try to see, where is the justice in that? Remember, at first, we're talking about people seeking their own rights. Where is the justice in Christ's death? We deserve the death penalty, but Christ took upon it upon himself. How is that a fair trade? 
So it doesn't matter how you try to match it up. The numbers don't match. The credit and the debit will not match up. But the fact still stands that the debt has already been paid for. Christ paid it for you. So ladies and gentlemen, we have much more than what we deserve. If you know Christ as your personal savior, then you can rejoice today that you have much more than you deserved. Now, just want to give you a little heads up. If you ever go to Sri Lanka and you ask someone for their phone number, they'll never tell you zero. I've never actually heard the word zero come out of a Sri Lankan's mouth unless they came to Canada. But in Sri Lanka, they use the word not. Or they say it in the Sri Lankan accent, note. And I, I was trying to figure out what they were saying, but then I saw someone write it down, it's not. And it was for zeros. And a hymn writer once wrote this about that word. Not have I gotten, but what I received. Grace hath bestowed it since I have believed. Boasting excluded, pride I abase. I'm only a sinner saved by grace. We have gotten much more than we deserved. God's grace. God in his mercy gave it to you. The Hungarian law, that Roman law of the one mile, that first mile in Roman times practically took away your rights. But Christ's law of the second mile sets you free. If you put yourself back into the picture of that Roman time, and you were a Jew, a soldier came, instead of asking you to pick up his things and following him, it's as if Christ picked it up for you. Your burden now is much lighter because you got much more than you deserved. So principle number one is to realize that. Second principle is our response. Our response is to overcome evil with good. The second, the common response, excuse me, the common response of most people in an ugly situation is to do worse to the other guy, right? That's what retaliation is. This is what the Jews were constantly seeking, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. This is what most people seek for when something wrong takes place in their lives or is committed to them. They want to do the return. Usually it's in a form of vengeance. And that takes place a lot these days. But Christ's push for the Christian is when someone asks you to do something that isn't pleasant, go further than they would ask. This is toward our fellow man, and especially our enemies. Our enemies, sure, they probably deserve every evil thought that is coming to them. But God tells us to love them. I'm not going to lie, that's a very difficult thing sometimes. Who would do that? But the, question, the truth is, Christians should. Christians should. How you treat others shows how much you love God. Romans 12, 19. Please turn with me there. Romans 12, 19. Romans 12, 19, 20, and 21 says, Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. 
For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. So when dealing with people, your response to them determines how you respond to the situation God has allowed in your life. And the way you respond to people shows your response to God. 1 John 3.17, But whoso hath this world's good, and seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? If someone is not willing to do the simple tasks asked of them from humans, how could they be asked by God to do something? You have been given time, talents, and treasures. How willing are you to use them to honor God? Now I know, I'm sure you're more than willing to honor God with them. If Christ were, to, were standing right before you, I'm sure that you'd be more than happy to use your times, talents, and treasures. But I think most people would also. But what if it was just an average person standing before you, asking the same things? Asking, or better yet, what if it was your enemy asking you? When someone asks you for help, are you stingy with your time, your talents, and your treasures? Do you withhold your things when a Christian brother or sister asks for your help, do you help them? We have received blessings of God and the mercy of God. Can we not give just a little bit out of it? You know the story of the Good Samaritan and the man that laid on the ground. Uh, he was going from uh, Jerusalem to Jericho. And one of the things that a lot of these expositors and a lot of these commentators say is that, that might have been a Jew as well. And it is known that the Jews and the Samaritans, they don't really have a good uh, connection going. Now, the reason why Jesus started speaking this parable was to answer, if you remember how the story goes, he was trying to answer a question from a lawyer who asked him, who is my neighbor? Right? In Luke 10, who is my neighbor? And so Jesus goes through this whole parable, and if you notice how he's emphasizing the other two guys who pass by the guy who is laying down on the floor, one was a priest, a holy man. Surely he's a neighbor, right? I mean, chances are this man who was in Jerusalem, he was, go he was leaving from the temple, and he was going back to Jericho. Chances are he's, uh, he, he, he's, he's met him, right? This holy man met him, but he wasn't the neighbor. And then the Levite, ah, yes, a fellow Jew. Perhaps he's the neighbor, but no. The Levite just passed by and just perhaps watched this man on the floor and left him. The irony of that whole parable is the fact that it was this Samaritan, the likely man that would have been despised by the man that was on the floor. He was the one who ended up helping him. The Samaritan helped him, and he didn't just help him, 
Watch what he did. I'm just going to read it for you. Luke 10, 35 and 36, it says, And on the morrow, when he departed, he took out two pence and gave them to the host and said unto him, Take care of him, and whatsoever thou spendest more, when I come again, I will repay thee. Which now of these three thinkest thou was neighbor unto him that fell among the thieves? It's a very interesting thing because what Jesus is showing is that we are called to love our neighbors as ourselves. Our so-called enemies are also our neighbors. Amazing. And in blessing our enemies and in blessing our neighbors, we end up blessing God. So, we are called to love our neighbors as ourselves. Let me show you one more scenario of a godly man that had realized how important it is to bless God. 2 Samuel, if you would turn with me, 2 Samuel chapter 7. Second Samuel chapter 7 and verse 1 to 3. It says, And it came to pass when the king sat in his house, and the Lord had given him rest round about from all his enemies, that the king said unto Nathan the prophet, See now I dwell in an house of cedar, but the ark of God dwelleth within curtains. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in thine heart, for the Lord is with thee. Now it's understood that this king is actually King David. David realized that everything in his life was given by God's hand. He realized how much blessings were coming because God was in his life. His realization of God's grace, right? The first key principle had done so much for him that God has done so much for him. Now he's about to respond. His response to God was, what could I do for God? David thought to himself, I live in a very nice house. And you, we were even told that it was a house of cedar, which was imported wood, by the way. My enemies are at rest around my kingdom. I have been so greatly blessed. All these blessings, God gave them to me. So what could I do for God? God dwells in an ark behind curtains. What could I do for God? David realized that there is much that he could do for God. To David, the least he felt he could do was to start building a temple. And as you know, it was Solomon that ended up building the temple, but at least David gathered all the materials to do it. God deserves so much more. So David responded. Some would call this the extra mile, but no, because if you think about it, Shouldn't that be expected of God's people to bless God? Shouldn't it be expected of God's people to bless God? Shouldn't that be natural? Our Heavenly Father never asks anything from us through fear. Our fuel or motivation for giving has always been love. God loved you and he saved you. That was the first principle to realize that God loved you and he gave you much more than you deserve. So our two greatest commandments to live the Christian way is to love God and to love our neighbors. This is what going the extra mile shows. It shows love. Love. So 
Two key principles. Now here's the third key principle. The reward. God always blesses us when we honor him this way. Even when you want to bless God, the beautiful thing about God is that he will abundantly bless you back. And this has been shown in many stories of Christians countless times and times and times again. When they thought that they were blessing God, what they noticed is that God only blessed them back with much more. After David realized his blessings in that story, and he wanted to bless God and build that temple, what God did was he made the covenant with David, and he said that David's throne will rule and be established forever. I'm reminded of a story of a man named R.G. Letourneau. He was an inventor and a businessman in the early 1900s. He dropped out of school at the eight, uh, during his sixth grade, and he had a great interest in machinery and mechanics. After a few endeavors in his life, uh, he was broke, though. But he had an opportunity to do some land-leveling work with, an, uh, with a rich man, so he decided to do it. And along the way, his contract started accumulating more and more and more. During that same time, he had heard a sermon from a preacher, and he decided from that sermon to become a business partner with God. So eventually, he considered himself a partner with God, and contracts started piling up more and more and more. And he got this idea that construction ought to be done by machines than handwork. Can you imagine? Construction with machines, don't have to imagine it's already happening. But what he started also noticing is that people started wanting to more and more of his machines. So he started moving into manufacturing. And eventually, his machinery was getting more and more and more sales. This was during the Great Depression. And the craziest thing about it is that eventually he was making millions and millions of dollars and as the turn of the decade was coming to the 30s, what he started doing was started giving God 90% and he started living on the 10%. Because what he realized, and this was his quote, it's not how much of money I give to God, but how much of God's money I keep for myself. Did you catch it? How much of God's money I keep for myself. And that's the reality of it all. It's God's time. It's God's talents. It's God's treasures. They all belong to God in the first place, and they're all going to belong to God in the end. All we are doing is moving the money around. All we are doing is moving the time around and the talents around. All around to do God's business. I like reading these stories and these biographies of other missionaries and famous missionaries. And Hudson Taylor had another story about this. Before James Hudson Taylor went to the mission field, there's a story of him where he wanted to rely on God completely before he went to the mission field. So what he did was while he was in med school, while he was learning Mandarin uh, Chinese, he was also wanting to live by faith. So he moved out of his parents' uh, place, and he wanted to live by faith. And as the story goes, he was also ministering to a lot of the beggars 
that were in England. And during some time, there was a moment where, uh, actually a, sm a small little backstory here. Uh, Hudson Taylor worked with a medicine uh, with a doctor and the doctor had a very forgetful mind. So there were times where the doctor forgot to, uh, to pay Hudson Taylor his salary. So there were times where Hudson Taylor went without, uh, without food. And this was one of those times. He had one coin left, according to the story. And as the story goes, Hudson Taylor met a beggar. And as he was speaking with the beggar and such, the beggar pointed out all his family. And there were five or six kids that were all begging. And Hudson Taylor, at first, he wanted to say, just have faith. God will take care of your needs. But then the Holy Spirit started working on Hudson Taylor's heart. And he realized, you hypocrite. You should do the same. And Hudson Taylor, all he had was this one coin. And he was in his heart, he was, in his mind, he was wondering, man, if only I could break this coin and, you know, I could give them a change and I can hold on to some. But no, eventually, after he prayed with the family, what he did was he pulled out the coin and he just gave it to the beggar's family. And he was filled with joy at that moment. He went home and he opened his cupboards for dinner and there was an apple. So he ate the apple and he considered it his dinner and he went to sleep. And if the story ended there, I, it would be such a, such a sad story. But the beauty of it is the next day, the landlady where he, he was renting his, uh, his house was, uh, she came in and she gave him, handed him Hudson Taylor a letter. In the letter was Hudson Taylor's full salary with interest. So what Hudson Taylor ended up getting was four times the amount he had just given away the day before. And that's when Hudson Taylor realized that God gives back with dividends, with great dividends. Taylor realized that he had it really good. And when he gave to God, he wasn't losing anything. He was about to gain. He was only being entrusted with much, much more. We read about King David who wanted to bless God. God blessed David back with a promise that would extend further than David's lifetime. When a Christian will go for the extra mile, the dividends are greatly increased. God entrusts you with more time, talents, and treasures when you go the extra mile. But I want to conclude. So what is the benefit to going the extra mile? Do you realize that God could have with, God withheld what you deserve in hell and gave you something even greater? Not only hell, but he withholds many things that could come at you. God didn't think about himself when he comes, when he, when it comes to saving you. God could have easily withheld the blessings from your life and mine. And worse, could have even let us go through our path of destruction. If God didn't show us grace, we would be doomed. It's the bottom line. If you remember 2020, what had taken place, the fact that you're watching this today, 
means that God has been good to you. You do realize that a lot of people had it much worse last year and perhaps even this year. But God did not let the things that could have overwhelmed you to overwhelm you. You have much better than what you deserve. You can afford to give. You can be thankful that God has been so good to you. But now we could give back to God. So I want to challenge you. I want to challenge you to seek to go for the extra mile. To seek to go for the second mile. Because there is a great reward. Sacrifice Sunday is also a great opportunity to go the extra mile. Above your extra tithe. Above your tithe, excuse me. To give to God. I want to urge you to give back to God. And start blessing him. And after you start blessing God, you will be able to rejoice and see that God will also start blessing you back. Not only in treasures, but in talents and also in time. Thank you for watching the message today. We invite you to join us again every Sunday and Wednesday for more inspiring messages from God's Word. Thank you.